Hello and welcome to another episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I am a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As those of you who tune in regularly will know at this point, we release three different types of podcasts. We have our interview series where we chat to experts on a range of policy areas. We have our 10 minute lesson series where we aim to educate and inform on a particular area of policy, giving a brief overview somewhere in the range of eight to 15 minutes, hitting on the key points that people need to know. And we have our seminar series, which provides opportunities to listen back to some of the most important presentations of past events. This week is one of those. Recently, we held our 34th annual policy conference on the theme of social rights for all, time to deliver on the European pillar of social rights. Our second speaker on the day was Michelle Murphy, who is research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Her paper was entitled Delivering the European Pillar of Social Rights, Challenges and Opportunities. Michelle's paper followed on from Santina Bertolesi's opening paper, which you can also listen to as a podcast. We hope you enjoy. Now, our next speaker is Michelle Murphy. Michelle is a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. She's responsible for Social Justice Ireland's European engagement, including the European semester and the pillar of social rights. Her paper is Delivering the European Pillar of Social Rights, Challenges and Opportunities. Over to you, Michelle. Thanks, Mick. Okay, so um, I'm delighted to follow on from Santina as well, and and it's great to hear all the work about the progress at the European level, especially after the the Porto summit. So in this presentation, I'm going to look at some of the challenges facing the EU in terms of delivering the pillar of social rights, look at some trends in the the key headline target areas, and then also look at some uh, proposals at a European level that would help to deliver on the ambition of the pillar and, and on the targets set out in the pillar itself. So as Fantina mentioned, um, the, it, the pillar of social rights, it's Europe's social rule book, and it's there to, to uh, support member states as they recover from the pandemic and, you know, meet the, the twin transitions that are, that, that are going to be challenging for us. And I suppose it'll be judged on whether it can truly deliver social rights across all member states. Um, I mean, Santina outlined the headline targets. I just reiterate them here. And I think it's, it's important to note that once again, it's good that there, that, that there are social targets that, that member states have to meet between now and 2030 and that can be monitored in terms of progress and, and the impact of social policy across both the union and in member states themselves. I suppose the, the context itself is challenging in terms of the failure to meet some of the 2020 targets on poverty and employment. I mean, after the financial crisis, there has been an uneven recovery across the EU as a whole. Uh, and even before COVID, pre-COVID, after seven years of uh, consistent growth, there was still almost 15 million people unemployed, of which 5.8 million were long-term unemployed. And then in terms of risk of poverty, there was still 84.5 million people across the EU at risk of poverty, including more than 18 million children, which you know points to the challenges that we face in delivering on the, those key targets, particularly in relation to reducing the number of children at risk of poverty and social exclusion. And I suppose it also points to the need for a really strong European social model to to deliver um, to deliver those targets for people across all stages of the life cycle, young people, old people, men and women, those with incomes and those with no incomes in the context of the, the ambitious targets that Europe has set itself in terms of the European Green Deal as well and in meeting the digital transition. 
So I'm going to look at some trends now in the, I suppose, the, the key areas. And the first area I'm going to look at is employment. Um, so this just graph shows you uh, employment in Europe from 20 to 64, from 2008 to 2020. And what you see is that even pre-COVID, the employment target for the 2020 strategy was going to be missed. Obviously, there's significant variations in employment rates across the EU, um, with Sweden having, having the highest rate. But I suppose concerningly, Greece has one of the lowest rates and the, the employment rate in Greece and in Cyprus actually is still lower than it was in 2008. So I suppose that, that is a, a trend of concern. Then there's also the trend of um, increased temporary employment and part time employment. Uh, in terms of part-time employment, about one-fifth of the labour force in the EU works part-time and three-quarters of those are women. Um, and one-quarter of those people are looking to work full-time but are unable to get the hours. In terms of temporary employment, then uh, that is a trend that has been growing, particularly among younger workers, which is of concern in terms of both the, the pay that the, the that they accrue was generally less than their permanent counterparts and their opportunities for career progression and for training, for example, uh, are generally lower. So that's certainly a trend um, to be aware of and a trend for the European Commission to be looking at in member states. Youth unemployment continues to remain challenging. I suppose the highest rates again are in, in um, Greece and Spain and Italy, which is concerning given those countries had some very high rates after the financial crash and some of them with rates of over 50% in 2012. And finally then here, the, the, the rate of NEAT, uh, the NEAT rate. So that's young people who are not engaged in employment, education or training. That's also high, which is concerning. It's about 11% in 2020. And again, the highest rates is one of the highest rates is in Italy. Almost one in five young people are in the situation, which is really concerning. Then Romania and Cyprus and Bulgaria also have high niche rates. So, I mean, that is an area that was concerned in the 2020 strategy. It's also one of the sub targets of the um, so Pillar of Social Rights Action Plan there. So the, the sub targets there are to have the gender employment gap, uh, increased provision of um, formally, formal early childhood education and care, obviously, which will uh, go to support having the gender employment gap and then decreasing the rate of young people who are not in employment education or training. And that will be challenging. And there's a need to focus, I suppose, in that cohort, young people who are disabled and young people from a migrant background are more likely to fall into this category. So the, there will need to be a focus on those groups between now and 2030. There's also a specific sub-target to ensure labour market participation of other underrepresented groups. So older people, for example, people with lower skills, people with disabilities, those living in rural and remote areas. And, and others. So, I mean, overall, there has been progress since 2010 in terms of employment, and that has been welcome. Um, I suppose the pandemic has particularly worsened the situation of young people. So, uh, you know, it's very welcome to hear the, the allocation of the social fund focus on, focused on young people. I think that's really important. Um, the pandemic will probably aggravate those trends I, I outlined in terms of temporary employment, part-time employment, youth unemployment, so a strong focus, I suppose, on, on investment in social policies is really going to be required across the member states to meet the, both the overall target and the sub-targets set out in the, in the action plan. In terms of education and training, then 
Um, these are the 2020 targets. So the uh, reducing of early school leaving rate to below 10% to increase the completion of third level education to at least 40% across the EU and um, uh, a target on lifelong learning to an average of at least 15% of adults participating in lifelong learning. Now, in terms of education and training, the early school leaving rate, the target has been met, the rate was marginally below the target. But as always, there are disparities between member states and some states still have very high rates. So Malta, Spain, Romania and Italy, for example. So going forward, there will have to be some sort of strong focus on, you know, continuing to reduce the rates, not only in, in the countries with high rates, but those countries which, which have met the target. Of concern, obviously, is that uh, young disabled people have, you know, an early school leaving rate of over 23%. So that cohort should be a key focus for, for the pillar of social rights targets going forward. So while progress has been made here, significant challenges do remain, particularly among young people with a disability and young people from a migrant background. In terms of third level education, that target has been reached, which is very welcome. And some countries, um, Ireland among them, have rates at or over 50%, which is very welcome. However, other countries have lower rates, um, particularly Romania, Italy and Hungary. And you can see the gap there between the higher achieving member states uh, and those who are below the Europe 2020 target. So there, there's still work ongoing in terms of um, improving the completion of third level education across the EU. Then in terms of lifelong learning, I suppose that this target has not been met. Again, there is a very great variation across Europe. Um, the, the Nordic countries tend to do best in terms of lifelong learning. And you see Sweden has a, a rate of almost 29%, Finland almost 28%, Denmark 20%. However, at the under end of the scale, um, you have rates as low as 1% in Romania, for example, and lower rates in Bulgaria and Slovakia. So there's still a significant amount of work in terms of increasing the number of people, adults uh, in, engaged in lifelong learning and in training. Because the target for the pillar, the headline target is that 60% of all adults and the action plan notes that you know, this will be crucial uh, in terms of meeting both, both social rights, but also in terms of adapting to the transitions, the, the digital transition, the green transition. And um, the OECD in this, the recent skills outlook also focused on lifelong learning as a key for individuals to su succeed in labor markets and societies shaped by trends such as environmental changes, digitalization, and indeed sudden shocks such as the pandemic. So I suppose it would be crucial for the two sub-targets there uh, to be met. So the digital skills and the early school leaving sub-target. And I suppose to this end, uh, public investment across the life cycle with a particular focus on, on adults um, will be key, but also a, a focus on on children and young people to ensure that we don't get to the point that we have a significant portion of adults, for example, with, with low digital skills, that, that we begin to move into a space where, where we're beginning to sort of prevent the early school leaving and other issues by investing in, in education, um, in education, in early childhood education, in training, in skills development significantly across the EU. Now, in terms of poverty and social exclusion, the 2020 strategy was to reduce the number of 
Europeans living in or at risk of poverty or social exclusion by 20 million. Um, this target will, will be missed. The average rate uh, was 21.4% in 2019, so that's more than one in five Europeans. Now, there has been considerable improvement in some member states between 2008 and 2020. So, so you can see this chart here that some member states, they have made significant improvements, which is very welcome. But I suppose despite several year, years of growth, uh, economic growth in particular, there have been still very uneven developments in terms of the income distribution. And this has limited the progress towards the target, which would be concerning. And I suppose an area of particular concern would be child poverty, which is one of the specific uh, targets of the 2020 strategy. So looking at child poverty then over, over the past 10 years or so, there's still about 22 million children in the EU at risk of poverty or social exclusion. And despite you know, significant progress again in some member states since 2008, the, the rates of child poverty are still very, very high and the position for some children continues, continues to be very negative. And I suppose this is a very concerning, not only for the children and their families, but also for the EU as a whole in terms of the long term consequences, both the social and economic consequences in the longer term. So I suppose that that's what makes the the importance of the the child poverty target that at least five million of those who should be lifted out of poverty or social exclusion should be children so important in the pillar of social rights and the action plan itself states that this should contribute to breaking the intergenerational cycle of of poverty and I suppose this will be a challenge it will require full implementation of the child guarantee and also it will require work in areas such as the country specific recommendations for example and linking that social investment to improved outcomes for for people at risk of poverty and social exclusion and putting the focus on improving the social outcomes for for people throughout Europe. Now, so I, I focus there on, on the challenges and they're certainly significant, um, but there's also opportunities that we have to, to deliver on both the ambitions of the pillar and also on the targets set out in the pillar. So um, in this part of my presentation, I'm going to look at first um, some alternatives in relation to income and work, which are vital not only to social well-being and economic development, but also to meeting the digital and the green transitions. And then I will also look at, I suppose, some specific proposals then at a European level to ensure that we actually meet the ambitions and the targets set out in the pillar of social rights and, and, and in the action plan. So in terms of alternatives, I suppose uh, the pandemic has, has and the implementation of emergency income supports and the subsequent wind down of those has led to, I suppose, mounting discussion and pressure at a European level as to how sufficient a right to sufficient income can be delivered across the EU. And as Santina mentioned there, the, the, a high level group looking at the future of social protection and the social welfare state in the EU has been established to report. And I imagine that group will be looking at um, many of these issues that I, I just want to point to here. The minimum wage, as Santina mentioned, principle six of the pillar asserts the rights of workers to fair wages, fair wages that provide a decent standard of living. And the Commission launched proposals in October last year for a new directive on adequate minimum wages, which is a really important step in terms of effective action here at, at an EU level. 
I suppose the living wage is also a, a concept that it, it's not new, support for it is growing, there's expanded research, and the living wage assumes that work should provide an adequate income to enable people to afford a sociable, socially acceptable standard of living, a minimum standard of living. So it differs from the minimum wage in terms of its evidence base, and it looks at consensual budget standards to establish that, that minimum essential cost of living. So in a sense, it's, it's, it's an income floor in terms of wages. Um, minimum income schemes, then, as Santina mentioned this as well, and, and the forthcoming proposal. And I suppose it's important to remind, to remind for, for those of us, for example, in Ireland, there, there is a minimum income scheme and we have access to a social protection system, but not every, not every EU citizen in every member state has access to a minimum income scheme. And I suppose the social protection systems that we have across the EU are, are the bedrock of a, of a social Europe. And it's important that we have minimum income schemes to be a safety net of last resort. And principle 14 of the pillar um, states that everyone lacking sufficient resources has the right to adequate minimum income benefits, which is incredibly welcome. And this, I suppose, will require significant political will and involvement of all the stakeholders that Santina outlined in her presentation to really deliver on this. And finally, then, uh, basic income obviously has, has gained a lot. It's been around a long time, but I suppose it's gained considerable attention in recent years, um, not least in light of the pandemic. Um, the team passed a resolution acknowledging the benefits of a basic citizenship income, for example, and stated introducing a basic income could guarantee equal opportunities for all more effectively than the existing patchwork of social benefits services and programs um, so a basic income it involves giving everyone a modest yet unconditional income and letting them top it up at will for, with income from other sources so the one thing the pandemic has shown us is that we do need alternatives to, to the current situation if we are going to build back better, if we are going to support member states to meet new challenges, the digital transition, the green transition and other challenges that may arise. So, so these are all, all areas that I'd, I would hope that a high level group is going to look at. Then in terms of employment, this is another area meeting the challenge of the changing world of work that the pillar of social rights you know, as a social rule book has to address. And I suppose basic questions are being asked is, can the market economy deliver what's needed in terms of employment and work? And we need to start considering things such as valuing all work, for example. And the pandemic has highlighted the enormous economic and social contribution of traditionally unpaid and voluntary workers, especially as many vital services uh, were suspended, including education and childcare. So there, there is a need to recognize all work including work in the home, work done by voluntary carers and volunteers across the community and voluntary sector and civil society, because their contribution is significantly, significant rather both economically and also in terms of social well-being. In terms of looking at unemployment then, and you know the potential impact of uh, the green transition, for example, on unemployment in particular sectors and perhaps long-term unemployment job guarantee schemes, um, the discussion around this has been ongoing, but it looks at involving governments promising to make jobs available to any qualifying individual who is ready and willing to work. So the concept involves governments absorbing workers displaced from private sector employment, paying at the minimum, paying an individual at the minimum wage. These schemes, they're not intended to subsidize private private sector jobs or undercut jobs that are already available, but they're intended to support people in times of high unemployment. 
And in terms finally then moving to the shorter working week, you know, COP26 has just went down and, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around the outcome. But I suppose one of the things that has come out of that is the, the need how we're going to adapt our societies and our economies to meet our targets. And one of the potential ways is to look at a shorter working week. Um, the New Economics Foundation has proposed a rebalancing, looking at 30 hours a day or a four day week. And I suppose the pandemic has, I suppose, um, introduced an unprecedented experiment in this. Um, and the, the Shore Fund with active support for short time working has combined with the digital home working to look at transforming our expectations around work and also looking at the principle within the pillar of social rights on work-life balance, for example. So I think the right to meaningful income and the meaningful work and the right to sufficient income are going to be two key topics for discussion between now and 2030 as we meet the new challenges both in individual member states and for the union as a whole. Now I'm going to conclude now with just some policy proposals at a European level to, I suppose, to deliver on the ambitions of the pillar. We'll start with ensuring greater coherence of European policy and to, you know, to follow on from President von der Leyen's integration of the SDGs and the pillar of social rights, uh, integrating the SDGs into the pillar and to integrate these into the economic processes of the European semester uh, to uh, legislate for the pillar of social rights so that they influence the macroeconomic procedures and taking greater account of social impacts um, when making country specific recommendations, for example, um, addressing inappropriate EU government structures that that may inhibit um, legitimate investments by national governments. So looking at the investment uh, rules, looking at a golden rule, for example, looking at exempting uh, green investment from, from the current fiscal rules, looking to advance proposals for a guarantee of an adequate minimum income or social floor across the EU, including not just income, but access to childcare, education, healthcare, other services, that guarantees every EU citizen at least a minimum social floor. Monitoring and addressing poverty among, particularly among subgroups such as children, young people, the working poor, as Santina outlined, and older people will be really important to make sure we meet our, our targets and to ensure that the European Social Fund is being directed to those areas where it's needed most. A focus on youth unemployment is vital. And also recognizing that young people, particularly those in that need category, um, will need support over a long period of time because they're experiencing multiple disadvantages. Support for developments of this in the social economy would be really important that would benefit both people in need, but also be consistent with the social investment package. And would, it would be linking social impact to, to European funds and, and making that connection for, for European citizens. Improving representation and EU policy making by meaningfully engaging with stakeholders representing those who are are most at risk of poverty and social exclusion. In terms of structural funds, I suppose it's important that they're of sufficient scale to bridge the gap between the economic and social dimensions of policy. And finally, that um, for the EU to adopt a human rights strategy to prevent the violation of human rights, the human rights of Europe's population. And I suppose these proposals, it, we believe if fully implemented, they would support the achievement of the targets set out in the pillar of social rights the ambition of the pillar and the ambition of the action plan and the social scoreboard. And indeed, they're, they're essential to realising the ambition of President von der Leyen for, for a social rulebook that 
delivers for everybody and really ensures so solidarity between generations and then allows the European Union and a stronger social Europe to meet the challenges of digital transition, green transition, recovery from the pandemic and whatever other challenges that we may face. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it useful. You can access all the papers and the videos from our policy conference on our website, www.socialjustice.ie. And if you have any ideas for future podcasts, please feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with any suggestions you may have. Until next time, stay safe.